Let's open up our Bibles. Luke uh, chapter 10 is where we're going to be. Verses 17 to 20. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we will uh, get one to you. It seems we're, we're missing a few of our, our handsome ushers, but we got a couple here. Um, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. If you're new to the Bible, this is in the New Testament. Um, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, little numbers of the verses. I'll read it, we'll pray and, and uh, dive in. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's an amazing, amazing text. Let's pray. God, we stand in awe. We're touching eternity in these words. Our names are written in heaven. God, for your saints, for your people... We are so much more stable than we realize. And so often we, we live our lives concerned for the day to day. Going up and down with circumstance. Back and forth with the tide. Happy some days, dejected other days, feeling lost and alone, feeling cared for and comforted. But what you are leading us to here this morning is the rock. The bedrock that's situated underneath it all. That preaches eloquently to us no matter what we are feeling, no matter what is going on around us. We are secure in you. Our names are written in heaven. God, I just, I'm not worthy of, 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 of teaching on these things. But I ask that you, by your spirit, would enable. And I pray, God, that you would, would, would speak through the fog, speak through the distraction into the hearts of your children in this room, your saints, whom you love with an invincible love. God, do all this and more than I could think or, or even imagine to ask. 
It's in your name. I pray these things. Amen. Um, some of you were here last week. Some of you might not have been. Um, if you were, um, and if you weren't, I'll just give a brief uh, review because there's a connection that I wanted to make. Last week, we talked about, largely kind of looked at verses 4 through 16, so right up above this text here this morning. And we talked about three things in particular, brought out uh, the idea of urgency, the idea of intensity, and the idea of agency. And essentially, here's what we looked at. We looked at the idea that, that this is the harvest that the fields are ripe, but that there's a limited window. So the situation is urgent. We need to get out into the field and get to work. And Jesus, God, is in essence thrusting his people out into the harvest field. And we also looked at the reality that the good news of the kingdom, the gospel that we bring, uh, is a matter of life and death, of peace and judgment. And I talked about how people in our lives, a lot of times we can kind of wait and linger and, and, and maybe we'll get around to sharing the gospel. And, and I I was just saying, this text last week, just saying, sometimes we just got to go out and say it. We just got to speak the truth in love and let them know because the time is short and it's a matter of life and death. And then we talked about uh, with that idea of agency, how we are, in fact, the agents of Christ or the representatives, the ambassadors of Jesus. Uh, the verse there right before ours in verse 16 uh, says essentially that when they hear us, they are to hear Jesus. Or when they see us, they are to see him. Or if you took the parenting or um, marriage seminars that we ran here by Paul Tripp, you'll remember him saying something along similar lines, that that we are in fact to be the tone uh, in God's voice. That we are to be the, the look on God's face. We are to be the touch of his hand. We are his agents. We are his ambassadors. And um, that's kind of where I brought us. I even mentioned how, man, last week I just felt convicted by my own sermon. I'm sitting there going, oh, I am not, uh, I am not where I want to be with this. And I imagine that coming out of that text last week and that sermon last week, there would be uh, potentially two dominant responses. Uh On the one side, some of us would hear these things Jesus is calling us to do and be, and we would come away feeling quite discouraged. Though I tried my best to show you that I don't want that to be the case. The gospel's at work. Nonetheless, you hear these things, you go, I'm not doing that. I'm not a lamb in the midst of wolves. Like he says in verse 3, I'm not laying my life down. I'm busy trying to accumulate stuff. Or or I get scared when it comes to sharing my faith with others. I have friends in my life that still don't even know I'm a Christian. You came away going, I I bet 
I bet that God is, is more or less ashamed of me. Maybe even angry. Because what I haven't been doing for him. The other response, um, on the other hand, maybe for some of us, would have been not too discouraged, but actually probably a little too encouraged, if you know what I mean. Meaning, as I'm talking about these things, you're kind of looking around the room, sizing up the other Oh, yeah. I'm doing this, are they? Nuh-uh. I got a list of nine people I shared with them the past two days. Not that I'm counting. I'm, you know those, those guys on, on, on the street corners lifting their voices for Jesus and people are throwing rocks and tomatoes at them? That's me. Jesus, here I am. I'm your boy. I'm your girl. Aren't you proud of all that I'm doing for you, right? Reading that and going, yeah, okay, all right, all right, I'm there, I'm there. A little too discouraged, a little too encouraged. Jesus in our text this morning, you guys, it's so wonderful. He is going to blow both of those possible responses out of the water. He's going to flip the framework that we so often live within on its head. He's turning things upside down for these disciples here. It's as if in verses 17 to 20, he's kind of strapping a a few sticks of dynamite to the structure of this kind of logic. That when I do, I'm great and it's awesome. Let's rejoice. And when I don't, it's over. There ain't no love. There ain't no hope. He says, you're too above ground. You're too superficial. Let's go deeper. Let me blow up what you are currently thinking and let's rebuild something else. He's going to do all of this for us in our text here this morning, primarily because he's deeply committed to and concerned for our joy. That's what's so awesome. I mean, I'm using violent imagery here, like flipping on its head, blowing up, blowing it out of the water. He's doing all that because he loves you. Because he wants your joy to be settled in something stable, something eternal. He wants you to have, remember, remember that, am I allowed to say it's kind of an annoying kids worship song? You know that one like, I got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Everyone's like, where? Down in my, where? You know that one? You know what I'm talking about? Down in my heart to stay, right? That's what he's after. Here. A joy with staying power. And if I dare say it, that's what every single person in this room is after. A joy that won't leave, right? So, I would say we best lean in and listen to our Lord in these moments. I've divided the text up under two main headings. Um, You'll see it there in your handout. First, a misplaced joy, verse 17. And second, a gracious redirection. So first, a 
misplaced joy. We read there in verse 17 that the 70, 72 returned from their missionary journey and it seems that things went really well. Kind of on that to encourage side of things if you're catching where I'm going. It seems they didn't face all that much rejection. In fact, they experienced quite a bit of victory and triumph. Um, they heard Jesus say, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. And perhaps they kind of went out with fear and trembling going, what in the world does that mean? It's not exactly a heartwarming image. Like, I'm going to be in the jaws of an angry creature out here. That's what this is going to feel like. But instead, they returned going, Jesus... You said it was going to be like lambs. We felt like lions, man. It was awesome. Even the spirits were, or the demons were subject to us in your name. It was just like pow, pow, pow. We loved it. It was awesome. We're ready to take on the world, man. Put us back in. It's because of these accomplishments um, because of their great victories at this point, because of what they have done, that we are told, verse 17, the beginning there, the 72 returned with joy. They're rejoicing in this, and we can understand that. But as we'll soon discover, Jesus detects something amiss in this joy. And in love, he's going to graciously redirect them to something more stable. He detects that they are rejoicing in something that it ain't going to last. It's going to kind of go up and down. That was a good day. What about the hard days? So let's go deeper. That was it for point number one. This whole message is point number two. So here we go. A gracious redirection, verses 18 to 20. Verses 18 to 20. Now, What we see in verses 18 and 19 in particular is that Jesus does, in fact, enter into, uh, it seems, the joy of these disciples here. He he sees uh, something good, and he is going to kind of celebrate it momentarily, but he's going to just lead them deeper. I think that's how, though this is uh, a difficult verse, I think that's at least... Perhaps the most appropriate way to understand verse 18. I saw, or in the Greek, forgive me, it's an imperfect tense which can be translated and probably should be translated, I was watching Satan fall from heaven. What he's kind of saying, I think, is, yeah, as you guys were out there, I was watching the enemy retreat. I was watching the kingdom advance. I saw what you guys were doing in my name and it was good. The demons were subject to you and you were healing people and you were bringing the message of the kingdom. There was good stuff going on. And this kind of continues into verse 19 where he says this, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. The basic sense of his words here, it seems to me, is ultimate victory is going to be yours. I mean, ultimately, you will triumph over every foe. Nothing shall hurt you. Those words, that promise is worthy of a few minutes 
Let me talk to you about it for a moment. Because it's an astounding promise in the English, if you'll let me. It's even more astounding in the Greek. Which again, New Testament written in this Greek language. We don't see it in our translations. But in the Greek, there's actually three negatives. Let me show you how this works. These three negatives are put here for like this maximal uh, emphasis, as in nothing, nothing, nothing is going to ever hurt you. You have one negative. That sounds pretty good. No thing shall hurt you. That would be how we would translate it. Two negatives, here's how it would be. Suddenly it's not so good. If you know your math, two negatives make a positive as far as I know. No thing shall not... Is that what it, a Bible app? No, that's okay. I'm proud of you. You got a Bible app. That's all right. No thing shall not hurt you. No thing shall not hurt That means everything's going to hurt me. That's not good. Two, not good. Three. This is a literal rendering of what you see in the New Testament text here. No thing shall not, not hurt you. It's beautiful. It feels like a riddle. You're going, what does that even mean? You want to know what it means? It's what Paul says in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Nope. Distress? Nope. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Danger? No. Sword? Nope. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No thing will not, not hurt you. It's beautiful. You will be more than conquerors through Christ. But, now here comes this most abrupt and important word at the front of verse 20. From here on is where we'll spend our time. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I mean, you thought he was climbing towards just massive, you know, time of celebration. No thing will not, not hurt you. Yes. Nevertheless, something else I want to show you here. It feels almost rude, um, doesn't it? When you look at verses 18 to 19, you get a sense that he's about to kind of break out the champagne with his boys here and celebrate. A job well done, a mission accomplished, and it's only up from here. But then all of a sudden, with a single word, it feels as if he's kind of brought the rain on their parade or tapped the brakes on their celebration. He cautions them about their misplaced joy. Nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you. That you have all this authority. That you're doing all this awesome stuff. Now, you see... Maybe, if you don't, I'll show you here. But 
to this point, the focus has been more or less on what the disciples will accomplish, have or will accomplish. It's it, the focus has kind of been on what they uh, have or have done or or will do. It's on kind of the activity of these disciples. Look at it again. The demons are subject to us. Satan, when we're able to send Satan running, we're treading on serpents and scorpions. We have authority over the power of the enemy. Or Romans 8, we are more than conquerors. The, the emphasis to this point has been on what, what we can do in Jesus. And he's saying, hold up. Because the most important part about that statement is that you are, in fact, in Jesus. Not all that you can do, but the one whom you know, the one who we better could put, knows you. In other words, he's saying, all that doing, all that accomplishing, all that more than conquering work, that's great, but it's kind of secondary effect to some more primary, fundamental cause. It is kind of implications that flow out of one uh, more essential principle. It's the fruit, uh, and, and glorious as it is, but it is connected to a more basic, more more important root system. And I want you to go there. I want your joy to go there, not out here in what you're able to do, but back here in the cause, the foundation, the root that stands underneath it all. Because if you drop anchor in that, if you bring your joy there and set it there, no one can touch that. No one can touch that. So this is where Jesus is going to try to redirect his disciples and us at this point. I want to turn now and read his words in full in verse 20. He says this, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. In other words, in the stuff you're able to do. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. These disciples, it seems to me, are more enamored with what they can do by grace than the fact that they have been given grace in the first place. They are more exhilarated by the power that they can wield in Jesus' name than by the fact that the God of the universe actually knows their name. That's the more fundamental, the more primary, the more essential reality. That your name is written in heaven. All this stuff flows out of that. And this stuff, let's be real, it's going to kind of go up and down. We're going to struggle at times, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. That unchanging from all eternity, love of the Father for His children. 
That's incredible. The essence of the matter, I think, is this. Um, We have this kind of abiding temptation. Believer, still, unbeliever, for sure. There's kind of this abiding temptation among mankind to kind of tether our joy, uh, find our identity, uh, 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 wrap our name around kind of what we can accomplish, what we can do. Uh, our gifts, our skills, what we are able to put our hands to and see happen. We kind of tether our joy there. But the dangerous thing, as I was just mentioning, is that, well, this is going to sometimes go up and down, is it not? That on my good days, I'm going to feel on top of the world. But then what happens on my bad days, or to go back to that kind of intro piece that I had, that when I'm sharing, when, I, when I'm feeling strong in the Lord, and I'm evangelizing, or I'm in God's Word, or whatever, I feel great, but what about when I'm struggling, or I'm doubting, or I'm afraid? Does my joy go with it? Is it over, or is there something underneath both my good and my bad days that can carry me through? You see, Jesus knows that these disciples, well, they just got done from a major W, major win. This was good. This was, this was a good day for them. He knows that it's not all going to feel like this. Absolutely, in the end, uh, no thing will not not hurt you. You will rise. That even if they lop off your head, not a hair of your head will perish. Absolutely. But, man, things are going to hurt along the way. And what's going to happen to your joy then? You're exhilarated by what you can do by grace. Let's start to tether our joy to the fact that we've been given grace in the first place. Because that's what sustains us in our good and our bad days. When I consider my own ministry and experience, I I see how what Jesus is doing here um, is something that I so (laughs) profoundly need. Um, To kind of exaggerate a bit, but to help you see this, I just was imagining, okay, let's imagine I come in on a Sunday and I preach the gospel with all my heart. And 20 people repent. And there's tears coming down their face. They meet with Jesus. They come up to me. They're patting me on the back. Man, I was blind, but now I see, Pastor. Thank you. Man, let me, uh, we want to be members. We want to get baptized. We want to plug in. We want to. How do I feel at the end of that day? You know, he's walking on top of the world. That's the temptation. I said, "Woo!" And, and don't get me wrong. There is joy to be had. There, joy, Jesus is just taking us deeper. The temptation is to tether my joy to that what I just accomplished. Whew, that was good. Thank you, God. I know I needed a little bit of help. I know I also did some of that good stuff. But then I thought about the opposite situation. Does this happens too? I come in here, 
on another Sunday. And I preached the gospel with all my heart. Same message, same stuff I did a few weeks ago. 20 people came to Jesus. Now, in the middle of my message, 20 people stand up, maybe throw the bulletin at me, and walk out the door. It's offensive, or it's boring, or gosh, I've had better pastors, preachers than you. We're going to go to the church down the street where they give out popcorn during the service or whatever. How do I feel at the end of that day? I'll just tell you, there have been days as a pastor where I'm like, wow, why can't I get off the floor? <laughs> What's this? This is new. I'm a pretty optimistic, happy guy, even just by nature. Why can't I get off the floor? question we have to wrestle with is just that. Why? Why um, on good days in my victories, successes, am I so, you know, freely rejoicing? And then on my apparent failures, am I so depressed or dejected? Why does it just make my day to get the praise of man, but it just ruins my week? To be rejected by them. What does that say about where my joy is, is being tethered? Where my identity? Where my name? Where my... Where is it? I do think that in all of this, it's kind of indicating in some way that my identity, my sense of self, my hope, my joy is tethered to what I can accomplish, to my doing, my activity, whether that's how eloquent I can be in my preaching or the breadth of my knowledge so that people are wowed or the size of my church or the number of my Twitter follow. I don't have a Twitter account, but listen, I'm a grown man. I don't tweet. Who, why do grown men tweet? Just, you know, come up with a more mature way. I don't want to tweet. Why are you shaking your finger at me? <laughs> <laughs> See, grown men are tweeting around here. Anyway, I'm just kidding. It just it seems so funny to me. But you know what I mean? What I can accomplish is what I kind of anchor my joy into. And on the good days, I'm up. And on the bad days, I'm down. But the basic sense for all of us is that we're kind of tempted to go the way of Babel. Do you remember this? Genesis 11, when they're building this tower, they have all this energy, all this motivation. They want to build, they want to use, they want to do something. Why? Why are they building this tower? Do you remember what we read? I'll read it to you again. This is what they say. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And what? Let us make a name for ourselves. The basic idea is that, listen, right now, we don't have a name. Right now, we are nobodies. Right now, uh, nobody would recognize us. Nobody would see us walking down the street and go, man, can we get your autograph? But man, if we could build this tower, if we could do something significant, then we'll be somebody. Then we'll have a name. We'll made a name for ourselves. Then we can have joy. 
So let's get to work. Let's get to work, right? And Jesus sees this sort of thing at work in them, his disciples. And that's where he's going with this nevertheless. He said, wait a minute. Get a name, make a name. You already have a name. Your name is written in heaven. My father knows you. My father loves you. What, what are you? What are you still running around trying to prove something? You, you're actually committing what you call it, joy suicide, if you will. You are subjecting your joy to a thousand ups and downs. Because you're not going to, the tower is going to crumble, it's going to fall, things are going to come apart. It's going to be hard days. What happens to your joy then? You already have a name. (laughs) And just like land on you, like the sweetest pair of wings. You're going to soar in that reality if we live there, right? I love what Tim Keller says um, on this. I don't have the exact quote, but I've heard him say things like, man, Christianity, it's the only religion where your identity, your name as it were, is not achieved. It's received. That the most essential thing about you isn't what you can produce, which is what the world will say, right? What you can do for them, what you've accomplished. Get your name in the lights, get your name in a star on Hollywood, whatever. People walk by and know who you are. That's because of what you've done. Nobody knows who I am. I'm done anything. God knows. I don't earn this name, identity. I don't, I don't achieve it. I've been given it. The grace. I don't know in what ways you are now tempted to try and make a name for yourself. I don't know what sort of things you're tempted to tether your joy to. Um, Perhaps, and you've got to answer this for yourself, I'll give you a few to get you started. Perhaps you live and die with how your job is going. I'm not saying we can't be happy on our good days and a little sad on our bad days. Don't hear me say that. That we're just kind of stoic or weird, weirdly rejoicing all the time. Now read the Psalms. They're not always happy. Okay. But I am saying that your good days, they don't like make you ecstatic like they used to in a way that everybody knows, ooh, this is going to head down shortly. And your bad days don't bring you as low as they used to because there's something underneath both, right? So what is it? Do you live and die with the way your job is going? That when the boss calls you in and he pats you on the back, man, you're skipping home. But when the boss calls you in and he tells you, listen, we're doing a reorg and I'm not sure where you stand. You better start to produce. You feel like your life is over. It's not just losing a job. It's losing who you are. And your joy. Maybe it's tethered to how your kids are doing. I'm certainly prone to feel this way. I know mommies especially prone to feel this way. 
Man, when they're behaving, when they're excellent, look at this, what a wonderful day. When they're talking back or they're doing poorly in school or they've kind of gone astray a little bit and you're wondering if they're going to come back to Jesus or what's up and what that says about you and your parenting, well, then you're down in the dumps. But maybe, I mean, honestly, maybe it, it's like whether you could fit into the pair of jeans you used to fit in when you were in college. I'm serious. This is a, this is a huge, this is a massive issue in our culture. A couple babies later, I can't fit into these. If I, I feel misshapen, I feel unattractive. And, and, and my looks have gone, my joy has gone with it. I won't feel happy until I get that back. However, I got to do it. Make a name. You've been given a name. You've been given a name. So I don't know what it is for you, but I know what Jesus is trying to move you towards. And it's right here. Verse 20. Again. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, whatever it may be. What you can do, accomplish. Whether in his name, in the church, or not. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, it's due time that we actually consider what that statement there really means. So, I want to do that here with you as we um, move towards kind of the the end of of the message here. I don't want to give you false hope or not. I got some more for you. (laughs) But this is kind of... Um, bringing us into some of the closing statements I wanted to make and stuff I want to look at. For one thing, we need to understand that Jesus, when he's talking about our names being written in heaven here, is referring to uh, names recorded in what is elsewhere called the book of life. Okay, that's like Philippians 4, 3, the book of life or Revelation, as we'll see, talks about the Lamb's book of life. Their names are recorded there. The picture, the idea of our names written in heaven is uh, probably derived from this idea in the ancient world, especially where you would kind of take this census, right? You remember that from the Bethlehem story and all that? Where Take a census and, 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 and a nation or a realm can kind of get a sense of, of, of who its citizens are. So you would go and you would register, you would put your name on the rolls, right? And so what essentially, amazingly, is being said when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, your name is written in heaven. He is saying that in, you, you are a citizen. Not here, but in heaven. That's why saints are called not citizens on the earth, but exiles. Why? Because we're, we're, we're citizens nowhere? No, because we're citizens in heaven. We're exiles on the earth. We're sojourners passing through, going home. That's what Paul says earlier in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. It is a declaration from God that we, in fact, belong there with him. That we belong to him. Isn't that incredible? 
This is why you can read things like Ephesians 2 and you go, what? Why is Paul saying, I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places? I know where I'm seated. And it's in these uncomfortable churches. (laughs) These uncomfortable chairs, Mercy Hill Church. I mean, ours are actually pretty comfortable, right? Too comfortable. Some of you are sleeping. (laughs) I know right where I'm seated and it's not in the heavenly places. Paul says, I beg to differ. Your name is written in heaven. You're there. You're there in Christ. Amazing. Now, when we consider the idea of this book of life and our name being written in it uh, a little bit deeper, what we realize is that kind of a past, future, and present uh, sense opens up to us. I don't know how much of this I'm actually going to cover because I think I want to throw in one thing at the end that I cut out, but I'm going to do my best here to show you what I mean, because this is the security. This is the stability of the child of God. This is why Jesus is directing our joy here. It's from eternity past to eternity future. It's as stable as God himself. Same yesterday, today, forever. With regard to the past, this comes into view when we search out an answer to the question, when? When exactly was my name written in this book? Written in heaven. For that, uh, perhaps the most profound um, text is is found in Revelation 13.8. Where John says that these names have been written before the foundation of the world. In the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Names written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, this verse is particularly critical um, for our cause here because it gives us not only the when, but the how. What I mean is, is it tells us not only when was our name written in the book, but how our name was in fact written there. With regard to the when, I emphasized it even with my voice, but we have our answer. Before the foundation of the world, before the world ever was, the idea, which we might look at a little bit further next week, perhaps even bringing in uh, the notorious example in Romans 9, but the the idea is that uh, God, from all eternity, is aware that we, in our free will, will rebel. We'll choose sin. We'll move away from him, not be interested in him. And in that place, he does not just subject the world to our whims. Rather, in his sovereign will and good pleasure, he says, no, I will redeem from that unregenerate, fallen, uh, depraved mass men and women. I will pay their penalty. I will ransom them. I will purchase them as a bride for my son. From all eternity, from before the foundation of the world, names written. Make no mistake, therefore, your name was not written in the Lamb's book of life. When you first believed. That's what this means. Instead. 
you first believed because your name was already written in the Lamb's book of life. And it's been there from before the foundation of the world. Now, I realize these things are tough, confusing, hopefully comforting and amazing. Set me free from all of my fears, losing my salvation. Gosh, if it's up to me, then it's on my own. I'm holding on. And I hope I can hold on to that rope he dropped long enough. But if it's not just a rope he dropped in Jesus, but a hand that's come down and is holding mine, that changes everything. Because I am secure because the Father has me. And it's not on the strength of my faith. It's on the strength of His arm. His will. But my name's been engraved. Like Isaiah would even say, in the palm of His hand. Amazing. But in case you need a few more witnesses on the matter, you know, we looked at that, I think, last week in the Old Testament. If you're going to make uh, a case, uh, you need two or three witnesses. Well, let me bring out a few more witnesses. Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Or 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. And we could just keep going, but I'll stop there. Now, I said that Revelation 13.8 tells us not only the when, but also the how, which I think is important. And so we'll linger here for a moment. How did my name get in this book? How does your name get in this book? Yes, 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 absolutely. By faith, in a sense, we, 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 I don't want to give the impression that if you don't have faith, you're in the book and you're fine. No, 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 no. But there's something before that. And there's something more important. And I think it's actually uh, right there in the title of this book itself. Did you see it? Revelation 13, 8. What is the title of the book? It's the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. It's an incredible paradox right on the surface. It's the book of life, but it belongs to the Lamb who was put to death. The implication is, is clear for our question, how? How do you get into this book? The Lamb lays His life down for you. He takes the eternal death you deserve for your sin so that you get the eternal life He deserves for His perfect, holy obedience. It's the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, I know some of us, when we hear this idea of my name written in a book, we might have the image of like, I don't know, NFL, NBA draft kind of a thing. Like God's kind of choosing. Like you don't choose the scrubs when you're drafting, right? You choose the guys, whoever's best in that pool of, 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 of guys. That's who you're going to draft. We'll call his name. We'll call his name. We'll call her name, right? Whatever. And so we might be prone to think, I know why my name is there. And look at me. But the title of the book would say otherwise. 
Your name isn't there written in liquid gold or silver. It's not even written in ink. What this text says, your name is written in the blood of God's Son. That he dips his quill, as it were, in the blood of Jesus, in the blood of the Lamb. That you're there because he died in your place. He let his name be smeared so you could have a name in him. So make no mistake, your name was not written in the Lamb's book of life because God knew you would be holy or righteous. Instead, it's exactly the opposite. You are becoming more and more holy and righteous, and like Ephesians says, you will be presented holy and blameless before him in the end because your name is already written in the book. Second Timothy, before good or bad, mine. Mercy. Ah, let's see. For the idea of, of eternity future, I could go to Revelation 20 where they open this book. But let me just show you actually the context of Revelation 13.8 again. We'll read it in full this time. Because I want you to see how if your name is written there, you make it to the end. You make it to the end. Listen to it here. All who dwell on the earth will worship in the context it's the beast. Or, you know, the devil and his associates and his powers and the world. They will go the way of the world. All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Did you hear it? I know it's late, but did you hear it? It's this cosmic crisis coming on the world, and we're moving towards the last day, and John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, listen, everyone is going to fall away, except... For those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Those who have been purchased by the blood of the Son. In other words, there is security. Your name, Jesus says, written in heaven, spans from eternity past to eternity future. And that's why he calls on that reality in the present moment. And he says, set Anchor there. Tether your joy, your name, your identity, everything to that reality, to sovereign grace, because there is nothing, no moth, thief, rust can get there. The devil himself may try, but he will fail. Because God's will will not be hindered. And your name is in heaven. Now, how does that change? How you approach ministry or, 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 or your work or kids or how you look. You go there. Don't, don't you feel like you can let go of your performance? doesn't mean quite as much to you. You're more stable, even on your good days. Absolutely, are you stoked? But you know there's something underneath it and that's what really, that's what really gets you high. 
And on your bad days, are there tears coming from us? Absolutely. But you know there's something underneath that. And so you're really not as depressed. There's still a hope. There's a sorrow uh, there, but it's mingled with joy. Now, yeah, I'm going to do it real quick. I'm going to give you two case studies. One man has made a name for himself. Everybody knows his name. But because he's tethered his joy, his identity, to his accomplishments, his performance, he's not happy. You ever heard of a guy by the name of Michael Jordan? <laughs> Anybody? Yeah, I figured so. My my kid, uh, my uh, generation growing up, I mean, I was out late night shooting those, you know, drinking the Gator. I want to be like Mike. That whole thing was running through my head. Absolutely. I tried to be like Mike. I was nowhere near as cool. Everybody knows his name. He's made it. But his joy is tethered to that, what he can do. And inevitably, brothers and sisters, when your joy is found there, something that moth, thief, rust can get at, well, your joy goes with it. There was a piece run in, um, by ESPN, I think it was a few years ago, it was 50 year kind of anniversary or something, or when he turned 50. And um, they did this whole spiel on him. Actually, the Gospel Coalition, a guy there, wrote an article, or wrote a response to that article. And um, here's some of the things that we see. Um, Thompson, who's the guy from ESPN who wrote this, um, he says this, Thompson's piece pulsates with the sense that Jordan isn't happy. Here's Jordan's words. I would give up everything now to go back and play the game of basketball. The Hall of Famer confesses. When asked how he replaces it, Jordan simply states, you don't. You learn to live with it. Some of the ways that it goes on to say he's learned to live with it, gambling, perhaps drinking, golf, owning a a basketball team. But the writer of the um, article goes on to say this from ESPN. This is not Gospel Coalition here. His self-esteem has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past ten years since retiring for the third time, why do you think he came back so many times? I can't let it go. He's been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, distance. Everything was given to that, but eventually the body gives out, the bones get brittle, the knees start to hurt, and he has to stop. And then who is he? Now the writer for Gospel Coalition speaks up. In the world, status is tethered to performance. It's the same in the Gospel. The difference, however, is that our status as believers is not tethered to our performance, but Christ's. Something stable, something eternal. Man, nobody gets a better name than, G- than, than Jordan. And yet, even he, when he put his joy there, was losing it. Now, the, the other case study I'd give you is a guy by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. So Martin Lloyd-Jones was an amazing preacher in the 20th century, probably one of the most influential there in London. And um, at the end of his life, 
This somebody comes to him, and and and, and this is uh, what they're saying. So so Martin Lloyd Jones is dying of cancer. One of his friends and former associates asks him this: How how are you managing to bear up? You've been accustomed to preaching several times a week. You've begun important Christian enterprises. Your influence has extended through tapes and books to Christians on five continents. And now you've been put on the shelf. You are reduced to sitting quietly, sometimes managing a little editing. I'm not so much asking, therefore, how you are coping with the disease itself. Rather, how are you coping with the stress of being out of the swim of things, of being relatively unimportant, unable to do and accomplish and perform all that you could do before? How are you handling that? How's your joy on your bad days? You want to know what Martin Lloyd-Jones says? Want to know what he does? Quotes our text. Luke 10, 20. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. My joy is intact even when my body, my ministry, and everything I gave my life for is going. Because this is tethered to him, my name written in heaven. Isn't that awesome? Let's pray, guys. God, Who are we that you would set your grace upon us? Who are we that you would write our name in the rolls of heaven? That you would say we belong in paradise with you. Though you know we're sinners. Though you know we made ourselves enemies of our own volition. You've had mercy on those whom you would have mercy And we've been counted in the number. God, thank you. We are far more stable than we realize in you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.